Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. This has been a deep study into this prophetic Old Testament book, and we see our current world through the eyes of the book of Daniel. Class teacher Doug Brady has carefully studied and presented this information with great clarity. And today's lesson, which he has titled, The Final Battle and the Final Defeat, taken from Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45, is filled with important information regarding what is ahead for this world, and it is coming soon. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets in the Lavoran Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We meet at 9.15, and following the lesson, we attend the worship program in the beautiful new Worship Center located one floor above our class. We'd love to have visitors, and as an example, we had 13 visitors in the class today and they were welcomed by the entire group. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin the lesson, so let's get a seat, open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. I want to start with a little bit of history. Back in 1918, they had just finished a major conflict. What was it called? That was the war to end all wars. You remember that? No, you probably don't remember that, but uh, that's... uh, Now, here's the thing. The French said, we're never going to let them invade us again like that. And so they built something called the Maginot Line. Have you ever heard of the Maginot Line? Well, they had these fortifications kind of look like this. And uh, they were all up and down. In fact, let me show you uh, on the map what the French did. You know, the French are the ones famous for those tanks, have uh, one gear forward and four in reverse. (laughs) This is the border, if I've got light here, this is the border here with Germany. And so they they built this Maginot line, it cost uh, millions of dollars. Uh, in 1918 dollars to protect so German could, Germany could never invade them again. Then, this area right in here, the Ardennes Forest, it was impenetrable, so they didn't worry about that. And they had light fortifications here, but this is Belgium and Luxembourg and Netherlands up here. You know, they're not going to invade from there. Netherlands aren't going to invade them. Belgium's not going to invade them. And then, bang, in comes... Germany in World War they come through the south through the Ardennes forest they come up through the low countries of Belgium and Luxembourg and the Netherlands and within days they'd taken most all of France they'd gotten all the way to Dunkirk do you remember what the type of 
battle tactic it was or warfare that the Germans developed to go around and through and over these fortifications. Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg. You know, they had all these massive fortifications. Did you know that was the Luftwaffe supply line would come right over that they couldn't do anything about it as these planes would come in. They were used to World War I biplanes. Now, why am I telling you a history lesson? Ah, that is a very good question. If you have your Bible today, I would want you to open it up to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, starting in verse 40. We're going to finish chapter 11 today. Those of you who are new, we have been working our way through this book. We are on our 48th lesson And we still have a few more to go in chapter 12. But before we start in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you that we can come together and we can study your word. I thank you for preserving the lives of these people and the testimonies of people like the Apostle Paul so that we can study them and learn from them. I thank you... For example, Father, when Rome decided to burn books of the Bible, when Antiochus decided to destroy the Holy Scriptures, that you preserved them for us, and that you raised up brave men and women who would hide and secrete those works and save them for us. Help us to be diligent, especially me, Father, in studying these Scriptures, to be able to share with my friends here the things that you have hidden here and that you have preserved for us in the time of the end. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, verse 40. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with ships, and he will enter countries overflow them and pass through. Now, we need to find out a great deal of information about what's going on in this verse. The first thing is, who is the king of the north and who is the king of the south? Well, we've been talking about those in the prior verses of this chapter, like verse 11 through 35, and we saw them as what? Where did they come from, the king of the north and the king of the south? The Greek empire. You remember it was divided into four parts, to the four parts of the, the, the four generals that Alexander had after he died. But does Daniel care at all about Cassander or Lysimachus? No, because it has nothing to do with who? Israel. But Seleucus and Ptolemy did. Now you see on this map here, It's green showing in Israel, showing that it was part of the king of the south. But Seleucus and Ptolemy fought constantly, and they'd have to march through this way. But if you look carefully, and this map's a little short here, when you have the king of the south, is it just Egypt? Who else? Well, what about this country over here? Libya. And down south, who is that? Some people would say Ethiopia, but actually the modern company is the Sudan. 
And then south of the Sudan is Ethiopia. And the Ethiopians had a tremendous amount of territory here, especially under Candace, that they controlled. So when you're looking at the king of the south, you're talking about Egypt, also Libya, and Ethiopia, Cush, or Cush is the biblical name for the one who produced the Ethiopian Sudanese race. Now, if you're talking about the king of the north here, Seleucus, well, we've always talked about Syria, but who else would be involved in that? Turkey, Iran, maybe parts of Afghanistan and Iraq. So now, in modern days, when we're talking about the kings of the south and the king of the north, we begin to see it's much more than just Syria and Egypt. And we need to understand that. That's the first thing. But the second thing that I think we need to think about is we need to focus, after these two kingdoms, on a pronoun. Now, look at verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. Who is him? Well, let me show you. Yes, we're going to just start with him. One is the antecedent of the him. That's how you got determined. But it, we know it's not the king of the south, and it's not the king of the north, right? I mean, that, that, that's just grammar. But if you come back up to the start of this section in verse 36, who is the subject of that section? The king. Now, the king is the one who is the antecedent of these three pronouns. So that. In fact, you know, it's, hard, it's harder when you start in verse 40. But if you were to gather all the way through... You will see he and him is always the same. It's the king, which is the beast. Even if you look in verses 36 and 37, Mark, show them all the pronouns there, which the antecedent of which is the king. So this is the beast. Some people want to call him the antichrist or the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. But that's who's talking and that's who's fighting here. And the king of the south and the king of the north is attacking either him or something that is important to him. And we'll find that out in just a second. Now, who are they really attacking? And what is going on here? I want you to see this because this is an important thing to understand. But let's go to the next verse. Understand what's going on. The he here is who? The, the king, the beast. He's going to enter countries, overflow them, and pass through them. Do you know what kind of battle plan that seems to be? Blitzkrieg, exactly. He's going to borrow from Hitler. Imagine that. And he is going to do exactly that. And he is going to attack and attack and overcome these two kings who are attacking him and what is his. Now let's go back to what is his. Who has he made a treaty with? Israel. What were the basic conditions of that treaty, at least the ones we know? I will provide you peace and security. You can rebuild your temple. Why does he want that temple rebuilt? Because he's going to take it over. <laughs> it's going to be his temple one day. But the fact is... They are, if they attack Israel, what is he going to do? Now, 
you would think, well, maybe he doesn't really care anything about Israel. Why would he really protect Israel if it came down to a fight? He just said that. Oh, no. You see, this is his ability now to attack Egypt, Libya, the Sudan, Syria, Turkey, Iran, and all of their wealth goes to who? The Antichrist. Do you see how that works? Now, so that comes back. Why would the king of the north and the king of the south attack Israel at this time? Why would they do that? Do they not know about the beast? Do they not know about these, these people? Well, what is the religious culture of both the king of the north and the king of the south? Muslim. They are Islamic. Now, there is a cultural understanding, and it may even be a part of the Quran. I don't know the answer. I have an expert here today, but, and if he can help me with this, that's fine. If Muslim people take over a particular piece of land and then subsequently lose it, someone else comes over and takes it, that subsequent owner is a usurper because that land belongs to Allah, not to that new person. Once Allah or his people own it, it's his forever. Now, if Israel's there, what is Israel? A usurper. Now, one of the most holy places in the Muslim religion, and there's a debate as to which position, the second, third, whatever, doesn't matter though, is the Temple Mount. Now, why do they say that? Muhammad ascended from that spot. It also was the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. Remember? It was Isaac, but they say it's Ishmael. Now, what's going on at this time, at that spot, there's a temple built. Maybe the mosque of the Dome of the Rock has been torn down. Maybe it's been built around it. I don't know. We don't know for certain. I don't think it's going to be built around it. I think it's going to be destroyed. And how you think that would affect the demeanor of the king of the north and the king of the south? Not liking it too much. And now on this land of theirs, their holy spot, there's sacrifices, animal sacrifices being conducted by who? By Jews. And then, about three and a half years into the tribulation, what's going to happen? There's going to be someone else taking over that temple, the Antichrist, building a statue of himself, having that statue start talking, saying, I'm going to control all ownership I'm going to control all enterprise and business, buying, selling, working, everything, supply chain, and everybody is to worship me. Now, does that include Muslims? Yes, they're required. And they're going to say, we're tired of this. We're going to put a stop to it. Really? Kill you. And beheading would be the way they would choose to do that. They're unhappy with that, and they're going to attack, and they've taken all they can take, and they can't take any more. Now, that's the way I see the motivation for attacking. If, if you think of some others, that's fine. But the fact is, Daniel predicts they will attack, and they will come. And now, once they do that, the Antichrist will mobilize and march on Israel 
to quote unquote save them. In verse 41, it says this, and he will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. Now you need to notice that phrase, many countries will fall. Fall to who? To the beast. He's going to take over a large number of countries, but they will fall. But those who will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon, then he will stretch out his hand against other countries. And the land of Egypt will not escape. He's attacking Egypt, the leader of the king of the south. And he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Now here again, this pronoun he is the beast. And his military forces now enter Israel, which here Daniel refers to as the beautiful land. And then he attacks, and when she secured Israel, he then attacks the attackers. And uh, are the Jewish people happy? Well, yes, at this point, um, other than the fact he took their temple away. But uh, Egypt is invaded, and a great deal of treasure is secured by the beast. Then he attacks Libya, and he attacks the Ethiopians. Now, the Ethiopians is a translation of the word Cush or Cushites in the Hebrew. Now, if you look, I think in the King James, it will say Ethiopians. The only one that just transliterates it to Cush is the ESV. And I wanted you to see that. You can look back in Genesis and you can see where that is going. But why does the beast attack all the way into Libya, Ethiopia, and Sudan. Spoil. And in this area of the word, if you really want to get to the bottom line of spoil, you just remove the SP. And there you go. And he is doing that. Why does he want this wealth? Because he's a materialist. He's all about, you remember, he worships the God of fortresses. And how does he worship him? By buying power. And he's going to take all this wealth away from them. You know, there's an interesting passage that Paul wrote in, in 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 10, where he said, it seemed like to me it's almost written for this man, for the love of money is a root of all sources of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the face and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now the source of all sorts of evil Will the Antichrist be involved in all sorts of evil? Yes, he will. And this love of money. Now, I want you to understand something so we make it clear. Some people want to say, did you not know money is the root of all sorts of evil? But that's not what the verse says, is it? No. One of the best, best quoted scriptures there is. It's the love of money. Exactly. There's no problem with owning things. The problem comes when your things own you. And you probably know some people whose things own them. Or they're striving for these things and the desire for those things owns them. And that's this man. Yes? Don't forget the Holy Spirit is not in the world any longer. Everyone is thinking this way. Right. Uh, other than those who become believers. But those who become believers, they don't stay around too long, the most of them. Some will make it through, and I think the high concentration of those is Jews, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But you're right. And they're all, so many of them 
are just having to suffer the judgment of God. Now, I think it's important, and I kind of skipped over this because I wanted to wait till now to talk about it. There are some portions of the world in that area that the Antichrist is, doesn't take. It doesn't tell us for certain. Well, it does tell us for certain why. Can anybody tell me what those are? Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Well, what do you mean? Well, look what it says. But these will be rescued from his hand, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now, have those nations always been friendly to Israel? No. Well, now, wait a second. He's attacking Israel and all these other kings. Why would the Lord spare those countries who have proven that they hate Israel? Well, what country make up those nations today? Well, to, to tell you, you got to look at the nations. Here are these lands. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. That's Jordan. All those countries make up part of Jordan. Now, what possible reason would God have of preserving those nations, that area, not letting the Antichrist take? Now, did God do that? What does it say there in that verse? Look at it again. What does it say? It says, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Does it tell you in the verse who the one is who's doing the rescuing? No. But when Daniel's speaking, you can understand if he doesn't tell you, it's God who's doing it. This is part of God's plan to rescue. Why would he rescue enemies of Israel? Because he has a purpose for them. What does it say? And we looked at this before. It talks about some verses, some prophecy about what's going to happen. We'll come back to this here in just a second, unless, it, unless it's repeated. The next passage I want to look at is Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then these are in Judea must flee to the mountains. What is it saying again? One word? Run. Run. Get out now. Well, what about, no, now. Well, I'm just going to, now. Or you'll die. Well, where are they going? Well, it says there to flee to the mountains. Let's look in Revelation 12. It says, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman here is Israel. But with two wings of the great ego were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent or Satan. Now, what's happening here? It's a place that's mountainous, a place that's wilderness. If you look in those countries, Moab, Ammon, and Eden, they are nothing but desert, mountainous, wilderness. That's what they are. Every once in a while, you'll find a little pocket somewhere. Look down there. There's a lot of people who have suggested where Israel's going. Some say Bosna or Basra. But a lot of people say this little place right down here. Do you, do you see that place there? Petra. 
The wings of the eagle, an eagle, but it's the wings of an eagle, is a way of saying that they were given some kind of rapid transportation into this area. Now, it says then that the serpent opened his mouth and a large uh, water flood came after them. And then God had the earth swallow that up. What exactly that means, we can only speculate. Jeff, it doesn't tell us specifically. I used to have an idea in a certain way, but I now um, believe in the prophecy of a rather noted religious scholar named Nikolai Lenin. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. But he said once, what we are going to do is we are going to surround the United States, and when we eventually get to surrounding them completely with socialist communist countries, America will fall into our hands like overripe rotten fruit. Now, his prediction as far as surrounding us is questionable. But the overripe rotten fruit, that's what we have become. And unless something drastic happens, we're just going to rot completely and be full of worms, in my opinion. All right. So these ruins, and I wish I had a picture to show you, are where a lot of scholars think in Petra, which are, they have all these dwelling places and buildings that are cut right into the rocks. Has anybody seen Petra personally? Uh, then you would know that, that that's exactly right there. And they're basically, you can go on tours there and you can see it. There are stories that some people have hid Bibles there. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who I put a lot of faith in, he believes the main place is a place called the town of Basra in Mount Seir, which is located in Edom. And he believes not only will God keep his people safe there, but he will miraculously provide them with food and water. Now, I don't know a place in the scripture that indicates that miraculous provision. But that doesn't mean that God may not do that. That's what he did for Elijah. That's what he did when they were in the wilderness before for 40 years. So, yes, sir. 144,000 Jewish people? No. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they will be out in the world evangelizing because he can't kill them. But he hides them from the uh, invaders. (laughs) Well... Not hide them, he seals them. And they just can't be killed. They will have the ability to avoid capture and avoid death. And it'd be amazing to be sealed like that, to be sealed on their foreheads. And they will be given special powers. Not all, just 144,000. They will be like evangelists going through the world, spreading the gospel. I mean, what was Israel supposed to do in the Old Testament? They were supposed to win Gentiles. They didn't do a very good job. And even when they did a good job, like Jonah did, they hated doing it. But that's what's going on. And so they will be hidden over there. And then we brings us to verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, who again is him, the beast. And he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful mountain. That means it will be triangulated kind of between uh, the Mediterranean, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem. If you draw that triangulation, that takes you to the plain of Megiddo. Some people call it the Valley of Jezreel. 
Some of you know the import of that. We'll talk more about that in just a second. And yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now, what is it saying? When the rulers of the far north, that's probably what's left of Russia and maybe some of Eastern Europe, and the east, which we all know who would be included in the east, they hear of this war, they mobilize, and they believe their involvement is mandated. Why? Because they don't want to give all that wealth and power to him. The, his kingdom is, is falling apart. And they believe they deserve a share of those spoils. And do you think that God had anything to do with gathering these armies together? Well, the ultimate proof of that, in my opinion, is found in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, where it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and the water dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Don't have to build uh, bridges over the Euphrates. They can just march across on dry land. So, and now, you're right. So now in the country that's already been in the center of the earth, according to Ezekiel 5.5, this final battle will be fought. And the battlefield be the valley of Jezreel, the plain of Megiddo. You know, there's a recording of when Napoleon was marching, he came upon this valley and he made the statement, you know, this valley here is the perfect battlefield. The whole world could gather here and fight each other. Amazing, isn't it? How things work. So he did not know he was prophesying. But the fact is that now as we look at it, Daniel doesn't tell us very much about this last battle. He tells us who was involved, and he tells us what's going to happen to the beast. You know, he says that, and yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. But John tells us a little more about the end of that battle. Look in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, I want you to imagine this. You're on earth, and you see the heavens open. Well, most of us have never seen the heavens open before. But they will be open. And they're going to, he's going to see a white horse. Now there'll be a lot more than that. But their attention will just be drawn to the white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. Now, one of the questions is, who make up those armies? I am convinced it's you and us. Now, you, some people say, no, 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 that's angels. Angels are the ones who are the warriors here. Don't you know about Michael and what a great warrior he is? Yes, he is a great warrior. But if you notice how it says they are dressed, this army, in, row, in fine linen, white and clean, that's, if you look earlier in chapter 19, you will see that that is the way his bride is dressed, which is us. And as you look at that, he will 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he will strike down the nations. Understand, the word that proceeds from his mouth is going to be like a sword. And it will cut them in two. And he will rule with a rod of iron, and he presses the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, the fierce wrath. You know, wrath is one thing. That's, that's in a superlative term. But when you say the fierce wrath... That is something you don't want to have anything to do with. And if it's coming, you want to be on the back side of it instead of the front side of it. And it's going to be horrible. You know, and on his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, To all the birds which fly in the mid heaven, Come assemble yourself for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Let me stop right there. Do you see that slavery will be reinstituted in the time of the beast? And... Who would be the slaves in this time? I think Christians. Those, well, let's not say Christian, but those who are true believers in the God. You're either going to be killed or you're going to be made slaves. So slavery will be reinstituted. Well, of course, it's also in existence today. It's just not in our country, but it's around. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, how can those people be such idiots to think they can fight the one true God who's coming down from heaven? I don't know. But the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. And the two were thrown down alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all of the birds were filled with his flesh. Now, was the beast and the false prophet killed? No, they were thrown alive into the lake of fire. No one else is in the lake of fire right now. They will be the first two admittance into that uh, lovely place. And, but all the rest were killed, which means they go to Hades or Sheol place of the departed dead, awaiting the end time. And the birds were able to eat. Now, I want you to think of something and understand something. Has there not all through history been promises made by prominent men as to great empires that would last forever? Do you remember what Hitler's promise was? A thousand year Reich. But it was 1938 to 1945. Not quite a thousand years, is it? Charlemagne made similar promises. The beast will promise to extend his reign and he will provide the world with peace, which it so earnestly wants and desires. Someone else has made a promise like that. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised a thousand year reign. Will he fulfill his promise? When no one else could. We're going to talk about in a second why that is. But first, I want you to see something because I want us to understand what's really going on. We have been talking about four conflicts, four wars over our study here of late. 
And I want you to not confuse them. I want you to see where they come from, and we need to deal with them. So, the first war will be fought, and all of these wars will be fought at the end time. What does that mean? The time of the end. The last years of the planet Earth the way we know it before the millennial kingdom is formed. That's where these... So, there may be a war. There will be a war at the end of the millennium. But I'm talking about the end of time as we know it. The first of those wars, as I see it, is that we talked about is the Psalm 83 conflict. The Psalm 83 conflict. Now, this is an unusual passage in Psalm 83. It was written by a choir director. His name was Asaph. You know how choir directors are. But he was in a more of a positive. He listed all the enemies, and then he was praying that God would destroy them as they were going to attack Israel. Now, who were the enemies that he listed? Let's look at those. There you see a map of where these enemies are located. There's Edom. No, wait, God saved Edom. No, but Edom's in there. The Ishmaelites, Moab is in there. Hagrites, Gebel, or Gebel, Ammon, again, one of the ones saved. The Amalekites, I'm glad our favorite Amalekite is not here today. I'd have to give him grief. The Philistines, inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, and descendants of Lot. Those all surround Israel. And this war that's spoken of in Psalm 83, if it occurs, some people think, no, it's talking about enemies, but it's not going to actually go to war. But if it happens, God will destroy those, those enemies of Israel as they attack. They will destroy. And it will seriously weaken those around them, make it much easier to build the temple. Vera. I'm guessing it really does happen because otherwise, how do you explain the fact that in Ezekiel 38 it says that they, the, I think that understanding is accurate of what you're saying because it's going to place Israel in a position where she thinks she's safe and can't be hurt between this destruction and the promises of the Antichrist. Now, the second war that we've talked about is this invasion I'm talking about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They'll be led by Magog, which you see as Russia. It'll include these other nations. The nations right around Israel have already been destroyed. But now these are uh, basically a Muslim-type coalition other than Russia. Do we see anything of Russia coasting up with any of these people as of late? Yeah, I think so, especially in the Syria and that area, Turkey and Iran. And you see Iran's Persia there. All of these places, they are going to come and attack. And what is going to happen to them? They are going to be wiped out on the mountains of Israel by whom? God himself himself will destroy them. Now, let me ask you, will that war occur before or during the tribulation period? Before, what evidence do we have that it's before? Because the weapons that they leave behind after they're destroyed will be burned by the Jews so that they don't have to cut any wood for a period of seven years. Seven years. Now, think about this as a second. There's some people who want to say, no, this is happening right near the middle of the tribulation. Well, if that happens, that would mean they would be, the Jews would be burning the weapons for three and a half years during the millennial reign. 
There's not going to be any weapons around, number one, and there's not going to be any burning that needs to be done during that period of time. So it happens before. Now, there is a third war. That's the conquest of Revelation 6. Let's read this because this is when the Antichrist came. Then I saw when the Lamb, now who's the Lamb? Just so we, that's Jesus. He broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in the voice of thunder, Come. I guess when you hear a voice of thunder and it's saying, Come, you come. Yeah, you probably ought to. I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now you see some comparisons here? He's going to ride a white horse. But is he going to have a sword in his hand? Or one that comes from his mouth? No, he sat on it, he had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, what do the words conquering and to conquer mean? Making war. Do they not? I mean, do we all understand? You know, there's some scholars that want to tell us, oh, no, no, no. He's going to do it with intrigue, and he is going to do it with diplomacy, and he's going to just con these people into... No, that's not what it says. Well, what happens as a result of that? And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and him on sat upon it was granted to take peace from the earth and, make, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. What is that red horse? War. There's going to be war all over the world at the start of the tribulation period. This breaking of the seals starts that tribulation period. That's when it starts. And this war is going to break out. And how will it go for the Antichrist? Well, he will win. He will take control. People will finally give up and say, okay, we'll let you be the world leader. We'll let you dominate. At least until we get to the end. Now, let's continue on. This final act or war is the War of Armageddon, spoken of that we've just studied in Daniel 11, 40 through 45. Let's look at a map here so that you can see. Here are those four areas right here, Anam, Moab, and Edom that he won't take. But the king of the south will come up this way towards Israel. The king of the north will come in, and then the beast will enter. Where will he be coming from? The revived Roman Empire. That's where he'll be coming from. And he will attack. And he will wipe out the king of the north and the king of the south. And he'll come down here to Ethiopia, Egypt, and Libya. He will also take these areas in here. And then kings from the east and the king of the north will hear. And down they will come. And God gathers them all there for that final battle of Armageddon. Notice Armageddon is not one battle, it's a campaign. And I wanted you to see that. Now, before we finish today, I have a few final thoughts that I want us to leave with just to see it. The Antichrist came promising peace. Did he not? That's what he told Israel, peace. But there can be no political peace. There can be no cultural peace, absent peace with God. If you don't have peace with God... There will be no peace. Do, do we not hear it? If you don't give us justice, there'll be no peace. You give them, if you were to give them what they want, what they say is justice, would there be peace? No. Won't happen. Because 
the people involved are enemies of God. Now, wait a second, Doug. That's awfully harsh of you to say. Enemies of God? Come on now. They're not really enemies. They just haven't met him yet, but they're not enemies. Well, let's look at Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies... See that word, enemies? It's a very clear word to me. It means enemies. If we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What we're saying here is we start as enemies. Once you receive Jesus as your personal Savior, then things change. You are no longer an enemy of God. You wear shoes that are the gospel of peace. Because you are no longer the enemy. Now, that's the first thing I want you to see. And then there's a second thing. I want you to look at this first. A lot of horrible things happened during this seven-year period. Especially in the last three and a half. Remember what verse 44 said. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath and destroy and annihilate many. Much of this is going to be aimed at God's chosen people. What this man does is horrible. There are souls in heaven of the people who have been slain during the tribulation who are saying, when will you make him pay? Look what he is doing. How long can this go on? God's answer will be, wait a little longer till the appointed time. But many of us tend to think, that God is like a man. And he said, well, that happened. You know, he's forgotten about that. You know, some of us, when we were children, we always hope our parents had forgotten. My dad never forgot. <laughs> but I want you to look at two passages. First, Genesis 15, verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Who's he talking about? Israel. They're going to be slaves. God's people is going to be slaves in Egypt for four generations. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What is God saying? I'm keeping track of the iniquity of these people. And when it has run its course and it's complete, what am I going to have happen? I'm going to bring the Israelites out. And what am I going to tell them to do? Kill every man, every woman, every child. What child are you in? Kill every child. Kill every animal. Destroy them all. God keeps track of the wrongs that are committed, and there will always be a payday. Look again in Romans 2.5 what it says. But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are, restore, are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. These people are storing up wrath people who are responsible for killing babies in our country are storing up wrath. They don't realize it. They have a bank account. The ones who are destroying God's plan for marriage of a man and a woman are storing up wrath. They have an account. All of these people, you think, they're just getting away with it, Doug. Nothing happens to them. Their account is being added to every moment of every day. They're committing this evil. And they will pay. And if you get a chance to look at their payment, you will turn away because of how terrible it will be. 
how terrible it will be. So what do we do? We have to learn to live in a pagan nation now. And the way to do that is to be men and women of conviction. What does it mean to be a man or a woman of conviction? The man we're going to study, his name is Elijah, will teach us this. A man or a woman of conviction is one who is convinced of three things. They are absolutely convinced, no doubt at all, of these three things. Number one, God is real. Number two, I am God's man or woman. Number three, God has the power and the resources to enable me to meet whatever challenge he puts before me. And if the men and women of our nation, the godly men and women, were absolutely convinced of those things, we could turn our nation around. Well, we're going to learn how to do that. But we still have one final chapter. Chapter 12, which is going to tell us some amazing things. And we will... We will study that. I get so excited about it, I almost sometimes think, don't even teach an Easter lesson, just do Daniel. <laughs> we'll see what happens, because God will put it on my heart, I'm sure. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Now. Father, I thank you for the time that we could gather together here and study your word. You know that I love you, and I love these people who are here. Help me to be faithful to you and to them, to study and to seek to understand what it is you are saying, to listen to you and how to teach and what to teach. Now, Father, I pray that you'll bless our church. Things that our church is doing that are not right, I pray that you will eliminate them. The things, Father, that we need to be doing, put on the hearts of our people and our leaders so that we can push forward in the way you want us to go. Help us to be known as the church in America that stands the strongest, that that is absolutely convinced that you are real, that we are your church, and that you have the power and the resources to enable us to overcome whatever challenge Satan and his multiple forces want to put before us. Help us to be light and salt. I want to pray again for those nine men and women who sit on our Supreme Court. I, I pray that you will work in their hearts that you will turn their hearts like channels of water, and that we will see something that amazing happen on both the Mississippi case that's before them and the Texas case, and that the killing of innocent, unborn babies is stopped, and that life is given back to them. The choice of life is not their mother's, but yours. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 